Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one incredible page of Talmud each day. And today's pages, Bavakama 87 and 88, kick things off by evoking a concept that I think is on many of our minds these days. It is the concept of Goel Hadam, or the Avenger of Blood. And the rabbis go on and on discussing what particular form of justice should be meted to the avenger of blood, someone who didn't just take a life or attack someone else, but did so because something horrible had happened to their loved ones, because they themselves were victims of a brutal attack. Obviously, since October 7, these questions of what precisely do Jewish ethics permit us to do when we find ourselves on the retaliating end of atrocities have been first and foremost on many of our minds. And so I sat down for a conversation with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, the author of a new fascinating and oh-so-timely book called Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. We will air the whole interview soon on our sister podcast, Unorthodox, but our conversation was so timely and so pertinent to today's stuff that we wanted to give you a little taste focusing on what we may or may not do as we seek not to avenge the blood of our fallen loved ones, but to protect those still alive, release the prisoners, and at the same time, make sure we do whatever needs to be done to protect innocent civilian lives. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. Rabbi Brody, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So as I'm holding this book, Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View in War and Morality, I have to say you have a heck of a sense of timing. Um, a little bit too surreal in some ways. Uh, I've been working on this for, for some time, for a number of years. And uh, unfortunately, on October 7th, it became all too real. So in the book, you really masterfully show Judaism's contributions and, and, and rabbinic opinions at various historical junctures, including World War I, World War II, and, and a host of Israel's more famous and tragic wars, battles, and, and terrorist attacks, which really is in of itself a, a great reason to, to read this book, even if you're not necessarily interested in, in the sort of halachic perspective. But I want to do something a little bit different here. I want to just ask you a host of questions that have made it into the public discourse these days and, and sort of have you kind of opine on them because you cover a lot of them in the book. In no apparent order, here goes. Uh, so here we are recovering from the single most devastating attack uh, on Jews we've seen since the Holocaust with unspeakable brutalities documented for all to see. And a lot of us are thinking, you know, it's time we stopped holding ourselves to a higher standard. It is time we went ahead and did whatever we needed to address this, to make sure this never happens again, even if the cost is devastating loss to civilian lives on the other end, Enough already with the morality, it only leads to more dead Jews. Well, there's no doubt there's a moral imperative for us to defend ourselves and to do what it takes in order to make sure that Jews can live securely in Israel and for that matter, anywhere else around the world. 
self-defense is a moral imperative. It's just not, it's not just a matter of interest. And so I, I do think that that's a primary uh, moral consideration. Uh, that said, um, it doesn't mean that there aren't other values as well that we bring to the table in trying to uh, make sure that we fight in a way in which we feel is true to our values. So yes, victory is of primary importance when we have such, especially with such a just cause, but we should always be keeping in mind other factors, including the fact that all humans are created in the image of God. And this has been a source of human dignity and a source for the world and something for our people of keeping that in mind. And keeping that in consideration, I think we do have a moral imperative to try to minimize the amount of harm that's done, particularly to those who are non-combatants. And that is you know, one of those things which I think is important in a multi-value framework of thinking about these issues. You want to try to balance values. And there was always going to be a question, can we retain both of them? And when push comes to shove, I try to argue in the book, we need to prioritize our defense, defense not only of our citizens, but also of our soldiers, uh, who are also our citizens and also our people. But I, I do think that we should keep in mind that uh, we don't want to have a situation in which we feel like we're killing indiscriminately. I think that's bad as an ethical act in its own. I think our soldiers as well will feel uncomfortable with that. And so there is that balance that we always have to keep in mind. But you are correct, Leo, that I think the West in general has been too cautious about understanding the importance of uprooting evil from the world. That's a moral imperative and, and of defense. And, and so there is this constant pushback against Israel. Well, you have to prioritize the human rights of others first. And while I think it's important to keep that in mind, we do have to prioritize winning and protecting ourselves. And that's part of the conversation here. But I never want to have a situation where we don't think about other values as well. Towards the, the end of your book, when, when you get to the 1990s and the 2000s, you start uh, addressing a new and sadly very prevalent threat or challenge, uh, the idea of basically figuring out competence from non-competence. You're right. In many of these cases, uh, and we're seeing this in Gaza very acutely, terrorists are hiding within civilian infrastructures, sometimes in hospitals, sometimes in schools, basically goading us to go ahead and, and, and attack those. And as we've seen on October 7th, it, it gets even more complicated because, uh, you know, uh, several thousands of those who breached defense and committed atrocities were Hamas terrorists, but thousands of others were just civilians and people are even as we speak, uh, holding hostages in their own apartments and partaking in this war effort. So how can we maintain this difference between competence and non-competence? And, and at some point, is the whole question just rendered moot by the point that the enemy is purposefully obfuscating these boundaries? Yeah, well, I don't think it ever becomes mute, but there's no doubt the distinction between combatants and non-combatants is purposely being blurred by the other side in this case. They don't wear uniforms, they bring people in, you don't know exactly who's doing what. Uh, and because of that, I, I do think that we have to recognize the fact that there are many people in asymmetric warfare, and so in the case of Hamas and others, who are not officially quote unquote combatants, but are certainly directly benefiting the active military effort of their country. And if they're directly benefiting the active military effort, then I think they become combatants. Um, and it's certainly those who are holding hostages in their homes, I mean, those people are certainly combatants. If you're providing actively, right, 
providing some form of significant help towards Hamas. I don't mean giving them a sandwich. Right? I don't mean waving a Hamas flag or something like that or cheering them on. I, I mean actually helping out in a very serious and direct manner. Uh, I think you become in that situation a combatant and become a legitimate target. And uh, I think we have to recognize the fact that when this, the other side is not willing to maintain a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants, then we have to recognize that fact and acknowledge that accordingly. Uh, and that's part of the moral imperative, recognize who's a legitimate target and who's not a legitimate target. The other thing I think we also have to keep in mind is that while we should always be targeting combatants alone, I think it's a very important phenomenon that we should always um, target combatants alone, we have to recognize the fact that when it comes to questions of collateral damage or questions of equations of proportionality, so to speak, uh, we're going to end up in situations in which that line between combatants and non-combatants has been blurred. We're going to end up killing others whose status is unclear or is fuzzy. And we have to recognize the fact that that situation is being created by the other side, blurring the distinction between combatants and non-combatants, and therefore feel more free to target combatants, but feel comfortable with the fact that others are going to be killed or harmed alongside with them. And so, you know, I don't want to lose that distinction between combatants and non-combatants, but I do think we have to recognize this is not like the old wars. Right? This is not the Yom Kippur War, the 67 War, or other classic wars where it's very clear who's fighting. And that has moral implications when, you, when you're fighting that type of war. And that's because Hamas has decided to fight this way. That's the burden on them. They have more responsibility for that fact. So, so let's let's apply the same logic to this question of proportionality. You know, shortly after the war began, my my friend Douglas Murray went on television and said, "Everyone calling in proportionality. What's Israel supposed to do? Find a music festival in Gaza and then you know kill and rape the exact number of 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 people." as the Hamas terrorists did uh, in Israel, it, it, it kind of, you know, devolves or sours in, into something that sounds, you know, almost farcical. So, as you said, this is a very new kind of war. How does Jewish tradition help us think about this notion of proportionality in this case? Well, Douglas Murray is great, and, you know, he's wonderful, been very, very outspoken, wonderful. But in the, the way he used the term proportionality, that's not the way it's used in sort of classic just war theory. Uh, proportionality is not a matter of tit for tat, it's a matter, it's a matter of when you make a decision to strike, you have to ask, is the military advantage worth it given the collateral damage that's anticipated? And so, you know, I do think that we still have to always ask ourselves, we wouldn't kill some one Hamas sort of soldier or fighter uh, and when there's, you know, 50 children around them, if this is a low-level person doesn't represent the threat. We wait for other opportunities. But certainly, uh, when you have situations where leading fighters and, uh, and fighters in general who are posing a real active threat at that moment against Israel, those people should be targeted, even if they are surrounding themselves with human shields. Uh, that's legitimate. And I think the Jewish tradition, it brings to the table this phenomenon of understanding that there are going to be multiple values to take in mind. So many Western thinkers today have a problem with a situation where there is extensive collateral damage uh, because they say, you know, you have to prioritize the human rights of those people. 
But I think the Jewish tradition brings into the equation other values, which we find in other traditions and classic war theory as well, which says we have to prioritize also decisive victory and removing evil. And uh, we've lost a sense of that in much of the West today, of understanding that imperative. And I, I think that the tradition can bring back to the equation uh, this understanding of recognizing the fact that the bad guys who are real threats need to be eliminated. Uh, and, and that's something which isn't, you know, it's not a matter of adding up, well, they killed 1,200 of us, we can only kill 1,200 of them or something like that. It's ridiculous. Right? It's, and Murray's absolutely right. It's a ridiculous way of thinking about things. But, you know, I, I do think that we have to keep in mind, uh, we don't want to carpet bop. We don't want to indiscriminately target in that respect. But if it comes to the fact that what it takes in order for us to defend the Jewish people, to defend our country, if what it takes is a significant number of casualties, including of you know, non-combatants on that side, that's what's going to be. So be it. That's a morally justified war. And I, I suspect that if Israel actually wants to eliminate the threat, even not fully eliminating Hamas from Gaza, but at least eliminate the significant threat, uh, we're going to be talking about many, many more casualties. Could be even double what we have right now in order to get that job done. And as long as we have a mind, a legitimate war goal, uh, I think that's morally justifiable. Rabbi Brody, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you are really going to love the new book just published by me. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. You can order it now at your local bookstore or directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is, you know, a smile. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs and other swag at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. Talmudic.